Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 59, I speak with Brendan Malone, Joint Group CEO of Raise Invest Limited. We discussed why working the BHB coal mines in Newcastle quickly taught him that he wanted an office job, how he went from being an accountant in Newcastle to an investment banker in London, then Hong Kong, then Singapore, why after more than a decade abroad, he left investment banking, moved back to Australia and started running his own pub, how the desire to get back into the corporate world created an opportunity to have the exclusive rights to a Roundup investment app in Australia which is now publicly traded on the ASX and grew 47% last financial year to do $13 million in annual revenue to become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. If you're looking to join Australia's number one investment app where you can invest spare change automatically from everyday purchases into a diversified portfolio, check out raiseinvest.com.au. That's R-A-I-Z-I-N-V-E-S-T dot com dot A-U. So I'm here with Brendan Malone, the Joint Group CEO of Raise Invest Limited. Welcome to the podcast, Brendan. Thanks, Derek. Thanks for having me here today. That's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you got involved with Raise Invest? What did you study? What were your early sort of jobs or types of companies that you worked in? Oh, how long have we got? It uh, feels like a lifetime ago. I grew up in Newcastle, up the coast, just uh, north of Sydney, uh, where I completed my commerce degree at the University of Newcastle, whilst at the same time I was working full-time as a trainee accountant. Now, I don't tell many people that, but uh, I'm I'm, I'm an accountant by trade. So I did that. I worked there for a good few years and did part-time university over over at Newcastle University. And then one day, uh, two mates from uni and I, who were both, all three of us were doing trainee accounts, he decided to hop on a plane and go to London. So when we flew to London, I got my first job in a finance role in a charity, uh, National Children's House, and I ended up there for about 12 months, but then a position at the Royal Bank of Scotland came up. So I spent the next 13 years with uh, RBS, Boast, and, and that was a massive opportunity, even you know, the change in the, in the lifestyle or, or my day-to-day work. Being with RBS gave me the opportunity to do a lot of travel. So um, after a couple of years, I think I had about five years in London and then they moved me out to Hong Kong and I I spent some time in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Sydney, back to Singapore over the next 13 years, which gave gave me massive cultural experiences, which is, you know, I still call on them today and especially when we get into the conversation about Rays and the Asia presence that we have there. So that was, you know, pretty boring being an accountant, moving through finance worlds, but but having the opportunity to travel was was awesome. And then, but then after leaving RBS, uh, it was about two, 2013. I met up with a mate from Newcastle, and we decided that we'd try our hand at hospitality and pubs. So I had a couple of pubs for a couple of years, and sort of whilst you know that's hard yakker, and I respect I respect the guys in the hospitality industry day to day. It was uh, I, I knew I. I I had a feeling that I could offer more to the finance world and this is where the opportunity for Ray's or even Acorns back in the day, we were called Acorns Grow, the opportunity that George Lucas presented to me was to say, hey, there's this, there's this amazing um, app to help people save and invest out of the US called Acorns Grow and, you know, we're working on getting a joint venture out here in Australia. Would you be interested in running it with me? What grabbed me on that from that day one was this the ability or the education around saving and investing and 
coming from Newcastle and I've got a lot of friends in the that live up there still and just because I worked for a bank, they would always ring me and say, hey, what do I do with my savings? What do, how do I do this? What's, you know, what's a good credit card? Not understanding that I was the investment banking, not the sort of day-to-day -day retail banking, but this financial literacy that the Acorns product at the time and now Ray's provided is what, in the background of my mind, I was thinking, this is what I need to do. This is what I can do and sort of give back to the community. So it's been a, it's been a long journey. Yeah, so if we take it back to your teenage years, a lot of people, I think, sort of find themselves in accounting, but that's not necessarily the first preference. Was it your family, friends, teachers that sort of nudged you towards accounting or did you genuinely as a teenager have a sort of passion for accounting? Oh, no, because I thought accounting was maths and no, I did not have a passion for maths. Uh, I, I'm decent with numbers. It's uh, Dad said to me one day, okay, what's, what are you going to do? So we actually picked up the yellow pages. We wrote off to a few accounting firms in Newcastle and said, look, I'm interested in doing a Bachelor of Commerce. Would you, you know, are you doing traineeships? And that was probably in the July, August for memory. I got about three or four interviews. And I remember I finished my HSC in uh, November 95. And I started on the 16th of January at uh, a place called Lawler and Davidson as a, as a trainee accountant in the, in the January straight away. So what do you think you would have done if your dad hadn't have nudged you more towards accounting? Was he an accountant or he just thought it's a stable, sort of respectable job? No, mum and dad were pretty, mum and dad were very good. They would say to, to all three of us, so older sister and younger brother, don't really mind what you guys do with your life, but get a degree. Go to university mm. and finish it. And then that's what I chose. I mean, if I'd had the marks, I always wanted, I think my year 10 um, work experience was with the vet. So if I'd, if I'd got the marks, I, I may have gone down that path, but. I didn't. I might work hard for the numbers that I got and, and commerce worked well. And I think you've said, I mean, there was about seven or eight of us from school that went straight into traineeship with accounting firms and commerce. And when we, by the time we'd finished our degrees, I was the only one still doing accounting. <laughs> and, and where did all your friends go? They, they got bored of it. They didn't like it. They just sort of peeled off into other things. Yeah, people off into other things. There was uh, a lot of medical students up that way. A few of them switched over to those sort of industries and uh, law. A couple of them went to law. A couple of them jet set around the world like we did did back in the day. Was it the sort of that was the more the model in the 90s to do a traineeship? I know a lot of accounting firms still do that, but for a small percentage of people, or was that your dad's idea that you should work while you study? Or again, the firm sort of had more of that as an option to sort of pay your way through and, and get on the job experience? Yeah, it is. I think it was an option. I, I believe it would still be today. I think it's a very good grounding and very good operational because, you know, I'm sitting, I remember sitting in Com 101 with debits and credits, but then the next week at work, I'm doing debits and credits and having that hands-on experience. And that's something that through my whole career is, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of the guys back in the day were going, I'm not getting paid enough to do this, you know, work all day, study all night. But it was that hands-on experience that I was excited about and that's what I've tried to do through my career is like, let me understand what's going on and not so much chase the dollars but chase the experience. And that's what made all of a sudden at university the debits and credits clicked because I was doing them in, in, in my day job. So it gave me that hands-on experience. And, then, you know, it's, it's such a big world out there from doing something like a commerce degree or an accounting role. It doesn't mean you have to sit there and do debits and credits or bookkeeping. You know, there's a world in accounting beyond that. Uh, I can go anywhere. And I remember Dad saying to me, if you can read a PL or read a balance sheet, you've got a good start on you from no matter what business you get into. You know, and now you know, I'm, I'm co-CEO of a company here running the, you know, turning the lights on on the day, paying the bills at the end of the day, and it's helped. 
And you, you probably spend a huge amount of your time looking at P&Ls now, right? Oh, so yeah. it's a, <laughs> oh, yeah. And what brought you to London? Was it, again, just excitement? Friends were heading over, bigger city, obviously, a lot more things going on than Newcastle, or how, how did you make the decision to go there? Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'd, I'd left the, one of the bigger practices and the, one of the partners had gone out on his own and asked me to go with him. So, you know, we were working out of his living room for a couple of months and, uh, and then we found a small office and we sort of grow, starting a business from scratch. Back in the 90s, it was sort of, you know, if you ever wanted to be a partner of a firm, like an accounting firm, they, they wanted you to have international experience or a big four experience. And I wasn't a big four back in the day, the Price Waterhouses and those guys. So I, I sort of, the our boys from uni, we'd finish uni and we said, well, let's go overseas and let's go to Sydney or Melbourne. And then we sat, were sitting around and going, Sydney or Melbourne's not far enough away from home. How are we supposed to get freedom as young blokes? So we went to London and the, the, the plan was to only have 12 months there and then head back to Newcastle and the other two guys did they they left one guy lasted six months and head back the other guy left waited 12 months and went back I think he took about six months to get home but sort of two weeks before I was due to go okay now I'm actually enjoying it I was I was in my role then at RBS and I was getting some great exposure and understanding how the business was and I was heading up to Edinburgh to the head office there and understanding at the, at the time RBS had just purchased NatWest so it was one of the biggest financial services integration transformation projects in the world at the time um, and I was getting some great experience. So I said, no, no, I'm going to stay here. And, and that's it. I ended up another 13 or another 12 years after that for 13, 13 plus years at RBS. And was there a culture shock going from Newcastle, which is you know, a city, but not, you know, a million person city to a, a place like London? It's just so much bigger than even Sydney or Melbourne combined in industry and opportunity and people and proximity to, you know, so many other places. Three guys jumped off the plane in Heathrow, ended up you know, working in the city, and we all thought we were big guys. We were nothing compared to what happened in London. And I still remember walking around the Square Mile or down Bishopsgate going, wow, that we don't have these sort of buildings, we don't have this sort of infrastructure in, in Newcastle. And then even when I first started at RBS, the guys took me for, for my first proper curry in Brick Lane. Uh, we don't have those sort of things in Newcastle. It was uh, it was a big experience, and then even my parents today, or uh, my older sister, or younger brother, they say you know, one of the best things you've ever done was go out, you know, take that leap, step outside the comfort comfort zone as an individual. And but even my taste buds, you know, I cheeses, you know, we were so close to France, and we thought it was great to jump on the Eurostar and go to France. Those sort of experience, we you just don't get those opportunities in Australia because we're so far away from everything, let alone Newcastle. Yeah, and so you're over there building a big sort of career there, getting a lot of experience. And then you mentioned you got sort of sent to Asia. Was that a choice? Like you, you again, wanted to explore Asia as your next sort of frontier? Was that just where the, the growth part of RBS was? Yeah, it's where the growth part was. So RBS had just bought NatWest. RBS wasn't in Asia or wasn't global, but NatWest was, the old NatWest markets. So they needed somebody out. To, they sent someone out to Hong Kong to set up the finance function. And I was supposed to have six months in Hong Kong, six months in Singapore, setting them all up. And we had a big finance team based in Singapore and India. And you sort of coordinate that, structure it, get it all set up, and then go back to London and take the next career progression there. But about three months into the Hong Kong trip, I was um, the we had a new COO at the time come out there to set it up. And he said, well, can you, can you not do that and work for me? It's bigger than just finance out here in Asia. There's an actual business in our markets. Can you sort of be the, I was his business manager to the regional COO. Yeah, about nine months after that, the world hit its straps with the GFC, ABN, uh, RBS had lined up to buy ABN AMRO just as that, just as that happened. And 
And if, if anyone knows the RBS history, we were bailed out by the, uh, the government over in uh, the UK. So that sort of we woke up one day the next morning and instead of having, I think we had about 1,700 employees with RBS in Asia, we had 38,000 in the combined entity. And we had to sort of sit there and look at the restructuring. There was certain, the, the purchase of ABN Amro at the time was going three different ways and RBS was just one of them. So we had to break up the Asian businesses and I think we we're in about 19 different Asian countries at that stage what assets were going where. And I sort of got enthralled in that. And then that kept me in Asia as well. And what was your experience like in Hong Kong outside of work? Again, a whole new learning curve or, you know, very different sort of culture there as well. What, what was your adaptation process like living in Hong Kong? It was surreal. Uh, even coming from London, uh, you know, I remember, I remember stepping off the plane into London going, wow. Then when I stepped off the plane into London and, and seeing Hong Kong and the high rises and everything so close in there, it was like, wow. The excitement never dropped. I mean, the humidity just about killed me, but I was rushing around. I wanted to see things. I wanted to, you know, the RBS team were very welcoming and would take me out and show me the sights. And there was a big dragon boat festival on on my second day there where it was a public holiday, but all the corporates would race each other. And I sort of got thrown into the back end of a boat, had no idea what I was doing, but everybody made me feel welcome. And it's the the culture. We actually partied most that night. Uh, It was a very big big welcome to Hong Kong but but again even the the weekends away or the, the short trips to Macau to even the Singapore offices and things like that you don't realize how remote Australia is until you're in those sort of situations and the, the cultural differences it's it was a learning curve absolute learning curve especially coming from Newcastle yeah, and then, and then you're going through the, the global financial crisis, like you said, sort of 06, 07, 08, 09, everything's sort of changing dramatically. At what point did you move back to Australia and did you consider going back to the UK or did you say Australia's home, you've been away a long time, it's time to sort of come back to your roots or what was your thought process in deciding where to go next? Bit of a combination of things. You know, family's getting older, wanted to be. I'd, I'd been away for so many years. I wanted to sort of, I'd used Asia as a bit of a stepping stone back to be a bit closer and, you know, a better time zone. If anything happened, I could be home a lot quicker. And then with the ABN AMROs, RBS ABN AMRO, we had a, a business down here in Australia. So I was based in Hong Kong at the time and they needed somebody to come down and actually organise that. There was 99 staff in RBS, 1,000 staff in ABN AMRO, bring the two together down here. There's some minority interest things going on there. So they sent me down. I said, yeah, sure, I'll go down there. So I was down here for about a two-year period sorting that out. And then there was a bit of a restructure after all that happened. And then um, I remember it was Boxing Day. I got the call from the Asian CEO saying, Brendan, we need you up here. And uh, you can take your pick, either Singapore or Hong Kong. And I'd lived in Hong Kong for a period of time. And a group of friends that had sort of now got married and had children had moved from Hong Kong to Singapore. So I thought, no, I'll give Singapore a go. And I was on a flight New Year's Eve. That was Boxing Day New Year's Eve. I flew up there to sort a few things out, get organised, and I spent the next two years. A bit of a travel at the time because I was doing sort of two weeks in the Singapore office, a week in the Hong Kong office, and a week in the Sydney office. And I sort of did that for, for a good 12 months. And then that sort of, you know, I cleaned up the businesses and, and what we like to say is we shrunk the business to greatness because it needed to. The biggest problem with RBS at the time and even the ABN Animal was we got too big too quick without the right foundations, the right structures and et cetera. So uh, after a period of two and a half years up in Singapore, based out of Singapore but doing the commute, sort of the business came to a, the right spot. I made the decision that I'd outgrown my usefulness in the organisation. So I spoke to the management team and I resigned and, and, and got out of there. And, and that's when I sort of said, right, Australia is home. 
I came back and tried their hospitality and the pub gig. I mean, were some people cynical, like you're a finance guy getting into hospitality? Had you worked in hospitality at any point or it just seemed like a, a sort of a bit of a, a welcome sea change from the world of high finance to, to run a pub? It was a bit of a welcome sea change. I think going back to the to one of your first question is why commerce or why? My part-time job was at BHB in Newcastle, you know, working in the hot blast furnaces. I'm like, no, I need to have an office job. You know that that was that was a key decision. Going right, this this was hot. This it used to kill me. They were twelve hour days working in BHP. So no, I did, I didn't never worked in hospitality part time. I'd obviously spent a lot of time in hospitality venues on this side of the bar instead of the other side of the bar, and it was it was a refreshing change. It was you know we we structured the businesses pretty well because of the experience that I had even with ABN AMRO and you know, it leads into how we've structured the business today here in Rays, you know, structuring it, starting with a clean sheet, getting the businesses right, getting the policies, the procedures, the standard operating rhythms set. It's something that I've spent a lot of time on and I actually enjoy uh, through that RBS, ABN AMRO experience and now I, I used it in the hospitality world to sort of, you know, staffing rosters, uh, times, payrolls and those sort of things. We set them up pretty cleanly and pretty good. And was the idea, it's a bit of, again, a bit of a sea change, a bit of a lifestyle business, or did you genuinely think I can make a real sort of substantial profitable business in a quite a difficult industry like hospitality? It's a bit of both. The the pubs were both doing very well. We started off with one whilst I was still finalising some things in Singapore, but coming back, you know, I needed a job. One pub wasn't going to support the both of us. So that's when we kicked off the second one and we, we sort of organised it and then it took us about six months to do the renos and we did most of it ourselves. Got the old accounting hands a bit dirty. We opened up oh, the November before Christmas and um, yeah, had a Christmas period and you know, about three months after that, the opportunity with Ray's in the March came and um, I said, yeah, look, I enjoyed hospitality. The hard work's done. It's set up. It's running. Now I'm going to go off and do this. The change was good for me. Mm. And then that transition to the opportunity with Ray's. So, so talk us through, how did you first get involved with that and come across that opportunity to do a joint venture there with them? Yeah, so George Lucas brought the opportunity and we had mutual friends. And I had a few guys down at the pub and said, look, I'm, I'm interested in going back to full corporate somehow. I, I didn't necessarily want to go back into hardcore investment banking. The next day, I got a phone call saying, hey, George has got this opportunity. Would you be interested in having a look at it? And I sort of, I met him at the AMP tower in the morning and we looked at the JV and signed the JV that afternoon. And was that essentially the exclusive rights to Australia for, for the business? Was that the JV or was there a different sort of way that you structured it? No, that, that's pretty much it. So what happened is Acorns in the US was founded by uh, Walter Crutton and his son, Jeffrey, and, and Jeffrey was at university or college going, right, you know, how do we save incremental amounts of money so it doesn't disrupt our day? And it's sort of like savings in the background of life. And he came up with this roundup concept where you, you link your debit card or your credit card to it, you buy a coffee for $3.50 and we'll round that to $4 and we'll take that virtual $0.50 cents and lock it away for you so that you can't touch it. I mean, if you leave it in your bank account, you can spend it in the next shop, you can spend it on the next coffee. But by just doing these little incremental roundups and and savings along the way, you can create some sort of substantial sum of wealth that will make a difference. So the business and and built the business two or three years earlier, they were just ready to go live. I think they went live in the August of 14 and we signed the JV in the March of 15 and it was an exclusive rights to bring it out. You bring the technology. So they provided us with the technology stack for the 50-50 JV and then George just had to fund the rest of it. 
fund the operations here. So AFSL, getting the compliance right, changing the technology and the, and the front ends from nickels and dimes to dollars and cents, et cetera, really making it Australian. And what was that first 12 months like? Like you've got the idea, it's got some proof of concept, it's work in the US, you've got the tech, you know, the paperwork's done, like you said, you sort of set up, what was the actual first 12 months operating it like? The biggest thing was the licensing. So we, we did our licensing, did our changes, put that into to ASIC to get approved or questions back, and then we built the technology. And I think from anybody out there that's starting a business, always think of that. that well, I've seen in the industry people spend a lot of time and effort and money on the technology, then they go to the regular and say, look what I've built, and they'll go, no, it doesn't work. So do it, you know, you always get your legal and your compliance sign off. And we do the same here now. If we've got any new product releases, we make sure that compliance and legal are in the conversations from day one because there's no point wasting a lot of time and money if it's not going to fly. So we did that. We did a licensing. Then we built the product. We went live in the February of 2016. And it was a great roller coaster. You know, we, we, we thought it would go well. We fingers crossed it had gone well, but it sort of beat all our expectations for something as simple and educational, I mean, at the end of the day, and for people out there that don't know, RAISE breaks down the barriers to investing. It allows individuals to be invested for their first $5 for as little as $5. The first $5 is wholly invested into a portfolio of your choice. And each one of those portfolios, and back in the day when we went live, there was five portfolios, all made up of seven ETFs that are all quoted here on the ASX. But just the different weightings across those portfolios created that diversification of asset classes. So breaking down those barriers for all Australians to get into the market and that resi- that uh, theme of roundups sort of really caught on in Australia and we were you know, pleasantly surprised and it was such an exciting roller coaster. And so did the market respond to it, the customers, essentially straight away? Because it's not a complex idea once they wrap their head around it and people thought, oh, it's simple, it's a, it's clever, like it's easy. Technology has obviously matured a lot, you know, I mean, compared to what it was decades ago. Or were there some people who were sceptical or worried about, you know, investing or where the money's going? What was those, those sort of early adopters, you know, like? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's interesting. And you know, today we have a we have close to three hundred thousand Australians with active account balances. So that means they've got at the month end they've got money in their account. Over the period, we've probably KYC'd and had over six hundred and sixty thousand Aussies have money in their account at some stage. So when you're talking about that sort of population, there's no ninety percent did this. It gets a lot. It's spread a lot. And I think whilst technology made it easier, the internet, the apps provide people with the tools now that we, we didn't have back in the 90s or, or whenever. The behaviour has been interesting. You know, people will put in, a lot of the system that we created is about automatic. You know, we want it to do it in the background of life. Certain people will download the app and turn all the automatic functions off and do it manually. I want to do my roundups manually or I'll put, manually put $5 in. Then you'll see them, they'll withdraw it two days later. And they go, okay, the app now does what it says it does. It's very simple to invest. It's very simple to withdraw. Now I'll put in 100. Then they leave it for a few weeks and they see that how it's working and then they'll turn on their automated features. You know, customers will um, not set a savings goal, as in, you know, one of the key features is we have is I want to go to Bali in November, so I need $2,000. So put in your target and then the app can help you save little bite-sized chunks of them oh, we, I don't need that, I can save $500. But then they, you see them put in $500, but then they have to take $300 out. And you know, if we, some of the feedback is I needed to pay rent. 
So you couldn't afford the 500, but if you'd set it up savings, you'd be you'd be a bit lot better off. So the behaviour is so interesting, but the key from the business point of view or the product offering is that we say we do what we say we do. And that's what a lot of customers will test with. Does it say what it will do? Is it easy to get out? Can I speak to customer support? Am I on hold for hours and hours? No, you're not. The team and the culture that we've built is to make sure customers are responded to, you know, preferably within 24 hours. Yeah, so maybe some people have been burned with like a direct debit, you know, gym membership they couldn't get out of or like some other automated thing or a different type of investment. So they're a bit cynical and nervous, but once you have the confidence, then they they like it, but they just are worried that it will overround or, yeah, deduct out money when they need it for a bill or something. Exactly. And that's it. I mean, we've all had those problems with those direct debits and, yeah, it's all too hard. So I'll do it next month. I'll do it next month. And, you know, there's a couple of months gone past and you've wasted money. But what the app also does on that basis, and, and a little tidbit, is that it because we see there, there is a challenge, people signing up, because you do provide your internet banking and password to give us read-only access to your transactional data so that the roundups can work. So there's a bit of a, you know, and this is, this is what, going back six years ago, seven years ago, so it was new technology back there, and all the banks will say, hey, don't share your passwords with anybody. So there, that was a big hurdle in getting people to download the app and get involved. But it was also, too, that we were a standalone brand. You know, people today say to me, hey, if you were raised, powered by ANZ, Westpac or CBA, you would have got a better take-up. Yeah, sure, I'm sure we would have. But we did it on our own by building up that trust day-to-day with the customers. And, you know, some of the, you know, the customers that were with us seven years ago are still with us today. They've achieved their savings goals, but they see it as a great exercise. And, you know, even with something like Raise Kids coming out, to have so many people sign up their for their raised kids accounts shows that you know the compounding interest over time will make a difference when it counts. So you mentioned the growth was pretty immediate from when you started. People like the concept, a little bit nervous around the technology, but quite quick adoption. Um, and then you've continued that rapid growth doing 47% last financial year, doing more than 13 million in annual revenue. What was it like, the good and the bad of managing that rapid, you know, growth and expansion of the business? As I said, it was like a roller coaster. I think one of the biggest things that was a surprise to George and I, and coming from our previous backgrounds of investment banking or something you know, similar to that, is the customer feedback. We have such a great customer base where they're not scared to tell us what they want, to tell us how the app is working, if, if anything annoys them, or even, I mean, social media gives, and I found this in the hospitality world, social media gives everybody a voice. Back in banking, we only ever hear the complaints or the big issues. In hospitality, I would only get the negative people would post things on reviews and things like that. But with Raise, it's been it's been interesting or enlightening because people will make the effort, customers will make the effort to tell us we're doing a good job or provide examples of how it's helped them. And that's been the basis for the actual product growth as well. So to get those growth numbers that we've got, you need two things. You need a customer base. You need to do what you say you do, and, and we built that culture to make sure that we, we're transparent and honest with everybody. Or, you know, somebody says, well, why did you take $5 out of my account? Well, this is why and this is when. But it's also then listening to those customers. So you've got to keep them engaged and you've got to keep growing with them. And, you know, that 47% growth was the prior year. 
This year, we released our results last week and we, we continue with a 39.5% growth this year on our revenue numbers, which shows that we're listening to our customers, providing them the, the services and the products that they need, and they're sticking with us. And was there a piece of feedback maybe in the early days that was a bit counterintuitive? Like, and you, you sort of, you know, it wasn't a direction you would have taken the product, but then you heard the customers have a certain insight and then that sort of shaped how you did things? Over the period, you think of the themes and we, we don't want to, we never wanted to, George used to drill it into me and say, we're not just chasing themes or chasing you know, current trends. You know, crypto is one of them. You know, the way that we've implemented crypto or, or Bitcoin into our system is, is a much better way for our product than what we, you know, if we'd been forced into it in day one, we probably would have done it a different way. We've introduced Sapphire portfolio, which is 5% of your allocation into to Bitcoin. So we're, we're providing people exposure experience in Bitcoin in a controlled environment or in a controlled manner. And, you know, when the theme and, and crypto was hit, hitting the moon, you know, the f- social media feedback was, raise, why, why only 5%? And then by the March, the, the same individuals were posting on, oh, now I see why you only allow 5% of your allocation. So I think we have our roadmap and product roadmap, and then we see what the customers want, and there is, there's an easy way to overlap them to, to get it right, that keeps both us happy with what the plans are, the, where we want to take the product to what the customers are asking for. And, and we, we marry those two up pretty much on a weekly basis. Yeah, so, so the customers were telling you, we want to round up into crypto and, and you say, okay, well, we can do that, but you don't want someone to put their entire life savings into something that very volatile. So you said, we'll give you some exposure, but you know, a balanced exposure, not 80% exposure that could wipe someone out. Exactly, exactly. And, and then for them to have their voice going, hey, great, but why only five? The It's going to the moon. Where, why can't I be in that? And to, for them to turn around and self-moderate and go, oh, now I see why. I think, but even pre this crypto was when you think about our customer base and, and who, we, who we were acquiring, we had five portfolios, conservative up to an aggressive portfolio. And the customers were saying, the millennials were saying, well, hey, what about ethical investing? So we came up with this social responsible themed portfolio called Emerald and it fast became our second biggest portfolio. So by listening to someone, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of businesses out there will say, yeah, customers will say, if you do this, I'll buy it, rah, rah, and it will never happen. But we built it and they came and it was in the Emerald portfolio and it still is one of our biggest, our largest portfolios at the moment because we listened to what the customers wanted. So the fundamental concept of, like you said, a habit formation, I mean, like a sort of a done for you. You don't even have to think about it. It's automated, round up. You allow accessible investing. That has sort of stayed the same, it sounds like, but where people invest is kind of what has evolved into the yes. um, the ethical and the crypto and the different things like that. That's been the real sort of evolution. Yeah. So yeah, four years ago, somebody might have been in the aggressive portfolio. Now they, they, they've they been educated. They've got some financial literacy around the markets. They want to do it a bit better themselves. So we two Januaries ago, we launched customised portfolios where we put all 16 ETFs and Bitcoin down the side of your phone and you can weight your own assets. So it gives them a sense of, okay, well, I'll see. It don't be, customers were leaving us saying, cool, you've educated me. I understand how it all works. Now I'm going off to do it myself. I can time the market. It doesn't worry what Warren Buffett says, I, I can do it. And then they would come back and say, oh, sorry, Ray, can you reopen my account? I want to go back into that. 
I don't like the set and forget, but it is what it is. It is people get it. They start putting a recurring in there. They start getting the, the roundups and automatic lump sum here or there, and then there's some sort of wealth at the end that they can do something with it. Yeah, and what was your thought process around being in a very you know large customer base? You mentioned hundreds of thousands of customers. You, know, you could have gone into like a boutique financial services firm where you've got a small number of high net worth clients, or you know a small local like a hospitality business. But but obviously this is you're targeting essentially all Australians, right? So so what yes. was the thought process and experience building like you know a real mass market you know consumer business with all the the challenges of trying to generate that large number of customers and branding and exposure and awareness and things like that yeah i think it's back to the previous conversations about financial literacy coming from a lot of mates that you know saw me as the banker and said hey you know how do i do this what do i do i remember matt uh, grandmother passed away and he had ten thousand dollars. He rang me and said, "What stock should I buy?" I'm like, "What are you talking about, mate? Yeah, BHP, CBA. What stock should I buy?" And it's like, "No, no, no, no. We don't do that. You know, you got to understand what you're getting into. You and like my father said to me, you only invest in what you can afford to lose in case it all goes bad. Mm-hmm. So it, that financial literacy, financial freedom, or inclu- financial inclusion that the Acorns or the Raise app provided was what is what really drew me to it and to make a difference on that mass scale." We've got time. Two quick ones. The first one was I was in um, Queensland visiting my brother and, and, and my wife and, and the little one was flying up. So I drove up the night before. Belinda rang me and said, look, can you grab some nappies before you pick us up from the airport? So I went into West Burley, uh, Stocklands, and it was 7 in the morning. I parked the car. I walked across and I had a race T-shirt on and some two guys yelled out going, hey, cars, hey, cars. And I'm like, I'm just, I'm just going, you know, get my nappies. I've walked out with this bright pink box of nappies. Hey, cars, hey, cars. And I'm like, oh, dear. They called me over. Is that Ray's? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, it is Ray's. And he he opened up his phone and he says, cars, thanks, mate. I have never had $1,000. He showed it to me. And I'll never forget it. It had $1,011.42. He showed his mate, whose name was also Brendan. The next minute, they're both giving me a cuddle. And I'm like, wow, to see the difference that that can make. Yeah, that's the target market that we want. That's what we want to empower these to, to all Australians out there through this financial literacy and hands-on experience. That, that, that's it. I mean, going back to my accounting role, debits and credits clicked because I was having hands-on experience. Things are starting to click with individuals because they can actually see the difference that it can make, the impact of compounding, you know, as it grows, it continues to grow and hopefully the markets do what the markets are supposed to do and, and continue rising. It's been massive. Yeah, and like you said, accessibility, whereas a lot of the financial services is, you know, only accessible to people with high incomes, high net worth, whereas the the everyman on the street is the one who can really benefit through better financial tools and education. Yeah, yeah, break down those barriers to entry. No more do you need a minimum of 500 or a minimum of 1,000. No more do you have to lock it up for three-month period, 12-month period. It's a, hey, give it a go if it's not for you. Uh, and, you know, that's something that we do here and, and the ethos of the business or the culture of the business is, hey, Derek, you've got $20 in your raise account. You're not using it. We are charging you the $3.50 a month fee. We recommend you close your account. People are like, what? banks would never say that to me. You know, it, it's trying to do the right thing and trying to educate them. Mm. And so if we zoom out a little bit, again, you, you've worked in the UK, in Asia Pacific, obviously building the business in Australia. What trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? What are Australian entrepreneurs doing well? And then where do you look to sort of other parts of the world where Australian entrepreneurs could do even better? I think we do it pretty well here in Australia. I mean, 
I, I go to a lot of fintech startups and, and industry events here in Australia, and I'm still amazed at what's, what's developments going on out there. And I'm like, well, why didn't I think of that? Uh, I think we're a very smart bunch. And so I don't think we have to look too far for, for better innovators or better uh, entrepreneurs. You know, it's hard. People ask me this question all the time, but you know, people to the left of me, people to the right of me will say, well, this should be improved, this should be improved. So it all depends on your industry. Yes, there's some things that the, the, the Australian government, ATO, fintech industries, the like, or legislation like could help with this, but it's not going to suit everybody. So uh, you know, we won't get into the politics of it. But I think Australia is, does very well with where they've got to today. I think there's a lot of opportunity in Australia and even the years of innovation that we've had. And it's not just fintech. It's just the entrepreneur generally. We can we can continue to do what the Aussies do, and the good part about it is, I mean, I've got an amazing team here. I've got amazing, you know, the other fintechs that I deal with. The Aussies come together. They they work together. They're very happy to achieve together, and that's what's going to make the difference overall. If we continue mm. doing that, you know, that Aussie team spirit. Yeah, absolutely. And and looking back to when you were sort of 18 to 20, you know, not sure what to do, your parents are pointing in one direction, friends are going in a similar direction. What, what advice would you give to someone who's 18 or 20 right now, maybe not right, not 100% sure what they want to do, what to study, where to work, that sort of pivotal life moment, what would you say to them? Yeah, I'd definitely tell them to open a raise account. Yeah, I think it would have made a difference to me. Wouldn't that be close to 30 years ago or 28 years ago? I tell them to open that and, and yeah, save where you can for, for that rainy day or to make a difference and get that financial understanding. And I think, you know, what my dad said to me, if you can understand business and understand a PL and a balance sheet, you know, it, it can make a difference. And over my career, I've noticed that, you know, in, in promotions in the bank, there'll be an operations guy and a finance guy. But, you know, when you're going to a COO or, or an operational role, you need a bit of both. And I could do the, the, the finance with my eyes closed. I think that sort of makes it, if you, if you don't know what you want to study, you know, start with a commerce degree. But I think the day-to-day the -day stuff is what would make a difference in, in, in an operational business. What, what we, George and I both say to the staff is there's never a problem as long as you tell us about it, you know. And trust me, over the years, you know, by letting it sit there and ignoring it, it's not going to go away, guys. It just makes it worse. So, Stand up, own your mistakes. And, you know, we all hear it. They're saying, you know, every entrepreneur's failed at least X amount of times. Don't don't be, and it's true. I used to think, oh, yeah, whatever. But it is, it happens. Own your mistakes, talk about it, be transparent. Uh, and there's, there's never a problem unless we all know about it and then the issue's on the table. I think that's a, that's a big thing for both running a business or, or, or even working in a bigger or a larger team. Were there any in particular, like something that was very hard to confront or to solve that you sort of shoot on for a while and then, you know, it was quite difficult sort of to work through or, again, not a failure per se, but something that was, you know, quite confronting or difficult to, to adjust or adapt in your in raise or in a previous sort of role? Not so much in raise springs to mind. I mean, there, there was a lot of decision-making around uh, the restructuring up in Asia and, and with, with RBS. And as I said, we, we saw it as shrinking the business to greatness. But then, you know, you, I was looking after 17 countries in Asia Pacific, so I had a personal relationship. I knew, the, knew them all. And making decisions around those, you know, the business go forward, that, that was tough. That was tough. And, uh, you know, I, I reached out to some mentors at the time and some mentors I still have today 
going, these are the problems I've got. But by getting them out on the table, then you could talk through it. And by delaying it, it's not going to fix the problem or, if anything, it makes it worse. So I think being transparent up in those sort of situations in particular was important. Hmm. And what does the next five or 10 years look like for Raise Invest? Do you have a particular medium or long-term vision of where you want to take it? And how much time have we got? There's, as long as you need. So much, so much to say. I think the biggest challenge is that we've got, there's not enough hours in the day, days in the week and resources around and, and obviously cash is an important resource. But there's so many, as I said, going back to that, we have a roadmap, a product roadmap, our customers have a roadmap and putting those together is exciting to see where the product's going to end up. You know, in Australia alone, we've got one of Australia's first residential investment property funds going live in the next couple of weeks here in Australia. And if you looked at our asset classes that we that our raise invest members can invest in, we've deliberately have no property in there. So offering that asset class to the to the customers here in Australia is going to be huge. That's rolling off the off the production line in the next couple of weeks. The, I think there's so much more to do over the next at least 12 months on the Raise Kids product and uh, that education program. And, you know, we're working with Montessori at the moment in structuring a curriculum around finance in school and money, which is quite exciting. And then there's Raise Super. I mean, we've only just scratched the surface on the Raise Super and making a difference in the super world. I think we can do a lot more around that going forward. But then there's everyday benefits. You know, we've rolled out raised kids with sub-accounts. Customers are asking us for sub-accounts on theirs for their rent, their holiday funds, just so that it's, it's that one step removed from their day-to-day banking account. They can't get on and do some impulse buying or transfer money. It is locked away into the ASX, so it makes it that bit harder, harder to touch, and that's what's making a difference to a lot of people. So, I, look, I could go on. There, there's so much we want to do. There's so much, as I said, there's not enough time time in the day to get it all done but i'm pretty excited about what we've got what we've got coming up so some of the big four banks have tried to sort of you know replicate the functionality of afterpay with like a step pay and their own buy now pay later have any of the big four tried to sort of replicate your roundup investing thing into their own sort of apps and systems the beautiful part about raise is and and the underlying technology stack that we have nobody does 100 percent of what we do we've got not not only a great customer acquisition engine and, and that's a bit of a secret source of us is acquiring financial services customers all the front ends are so we own pretty much everything along the path so you know ing has the roundups to their to an online savings account cba brought out com pocket and they you can invest for as little as 50 dollars, whereas ours is invest for as little as five dollars so everybody's doing bits and pieces not nobody's putting it all together as neatly as, as what, what we think we are which creates a massive opportunity for us and is the Raise Super your own sort of super fund or is that it rounds up into various funds that are not associated? It's our super. So, it, I mean, it's a great little exercise because you can round up those little bits extra and, you know, we've all seen the um, the press around what $5 a week makes a difference to your retirement at 60 when you're a young fella. It, so what we do is we can, we can have those roundups going into your Raise Super, but more importantly, our Raise Rewards program. So... Like, for example, I bought some clothes the other day for uh, my daughter on bonds and I got $11.14 rewards, a cash back into my raised super account. So that can make a difference. So it's, it's those sort of things where we think we can make a bigger difference, today's members, but future members on the raised super side as well. So instead of people just getting like a flybys cash back and then spending it, the loyalty points or cash back goes and gets invested. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I do it, mate. I, I do it for Piper, the dog's dog food from Pet Barn, and I think I got about $13 last month back from that. All these bits add up. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and then obviously with the super, they get the benefits of the long-term and the tax benefits and other things as well. Is it essentially a salary sacrifice for the raised super? No, it's, it's just a reward. It's like a, a voluntary contribution into okay. the super. Yeah. Excellent. And do you have any final thoughts or uh, you'd like to leave the audience with? I think so. I think everybody's got to take the opportunity to be honest with themselves, and that's what we're trying to do here at the Raise Business. Be honest where you're spending your money. Be honest where your savings or where you're not savings or where you can. And I think Raise provides the tools, um, and there is others out there that provide the same tools, so I won't just be 100% biased, but there's be honest in where you want to be, where you want to achieve. Take ownership of the, the positives and the negatives. And, you know, even if from an entrepreneurial point of view, if you have a good idea, it probably is a good idea. Get it out there, talk to people and, and make it happen. Excellent. Thanks so much for your time, Brendan. Great, Derek. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.